Psalm 10 is our text today. I want to direct your attention there. Summer is coming to an end. All good things do pass or seasons. And we have come to the end of this sermon series on the Psalms. Today is that last uh, sermon. And I told the first service, it's funny how Brad uh, assigns these messages, things that he takes, things that I will take, Peter will take. He gave me loneliness, depression, and despair. Thank you very much, our lead pastor. But today, we're going to come with a chicken or the egg question. Which comes first, despair or depression? So if you're traveling to one or the other, one is a rest stop, but it's not very restful. But there's a destination. And that destination could be despair in your life. It could be depression, which we talked about last week. But there is both existing in the life of the body. And I want you to know God's word is honest. God's word comes and addresses these things that we all deal with. The brokenness that we bring to the room. The, the hurt, the pain, the heartache, the disappointment, the lost job, the lost child, the lost dream, financial ruins. All of those things lead us to the place of a Psalm 10. Lead us to a place where we have questions. God, what are you doing? What's going on? So in honor of God and reading God's word, I would like for you to stand to your feet. We're going to read the whole psalm. But I want you to see something as we start down through it. That the psalm begins with a question that whether you call yourself a believer or maybe you have shown up here today and you say, well, I, Brian, I'm, I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself a believer. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. Well, I'm, we're thrilled that you're here. I want you to know the question that he has here may be a very a question that begs in your heart. It's a question that we all struggle with, believer and unbeliever alike. Believer and deist, specifically. Let me show you. Verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That question is that question. God, why is it? that there has to be so much trouble and you seem like you're not concerned at all. Then in verse 2, let's pick it up. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they've devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. For all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down. 
and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call me into account, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. You may be seated. Do you ever feel despair? And is it a rest stop for you on the road to depression? Or is it that the end game where this despair is that destination that you find yourself wondering, where is God? Why does the godless do well while you seem and those that you love seem to struggle? And this is a question from Psalm 10. And I see it as but one question among many bigger questions that lurk and rummage about in our heart as we struggle with heartbreak. And you're going to find heartbreak or it's found you. Believer and unbeliever alike come with questions, but they do arrive at very different conclusions. And let us draw near to God's word today. Let's look at the lament that we see here of the broken and the way through. Because I contend that all of us have at, at, at our, the footstep of our heart a highway in to despair. But there is a path out. And so I want to ask you today to stay with me long enough to where we're going to go down this highway of the spiral down... But I want, to, I want you to know there is a path out. Praise God. There is a path out. What lands us there? Now, I want to remind you that the Psalms, the, the Bible is written for, for believers. And to give warning also to unbelievers. And, and, it's, and it's out of this context that we see that God comes and addresses the believer who is looking to God and he's got questions about what's going on within. Believer and unbeliever will feel sometimes the very same way and it begs that question, God, where are you right now when I'm hurting? So this is what happens when that lands us in despair. I want to show you one big thing and that thing, that cousin of despair that helps us to arrive at that place of despair. So this is what we do. As the psalmist did, we question big things. You find yourself questioning big things, which can lead you to express one thing that is actually internalized as everything. Let me say that again. The questions that come from the despairing heart is typically one key question... 
that leads us to a conclusion that everything is clouded because this, this question, where is God? Why doesn't, if he's good, where is he? Why isn't he doing something? And that's a question that we all have. It's the lament of our heart in the midst of injustice. The lament is, where, oh God, where are you? We need to know and understand that the Bible doesn't dodge those questions. Believers are not pie in the sky by and by. We know that we come with heartache, with brokenness, with fatigue from all of it. The lingering, ongoing things. And I'm convinced that the cousin of despair, that place... That thing that leads us there is something that's so pervasive in our culture that we've lost sight of what it is. I've not read a better treatment of a Christian's battle with cynicism than what Paul Miller displays in his book on prayer. It's called A Praying Life. It's available in the Resource Center. You can get it on Amazon. It is a fantastic book. And at its core, he discusses cynicism. The cynical spirit. And let me explain brief what a cynical spirit is. You may have heard that term, but you may not know what it is. But a cynical spirit is basically the opposite of a childlike spirit. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 verse 15, that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Childlike faith is trust in the goodness of God. Of God. It's trust that God will do right even when circumstance says this is not good. And childlike faith is required to see beyond the questions, to see beyond our brokenness. Otherwise, what happens is this we get locked up in a prison of despair. And when we get locked up in a prison of despair, even though it may not be so, so, so fluid in your life, it's just low-level despair, we don't see what's really happening and contributing to it. So let's, let's spend just a few minutes talking about that. What happens that leads us there is this. Current circumstances and the world that we live in shape you, shape us, tempt us, to become cynical. They shape us into being a cynic. This is the modern worldview. The modern worldview is a standard of be cynical. Science, technology, and humanism has led us to believe two things are always occurring. Man has answers to everything that we're facing. And everybody's got an angle. Everybody has an angle, and that angle has little regard for you. And we do it as naturally as breathing. The Minneapolis Star Tribune, this is not something that's brand new in the last five years. The Minneapolis Star Tribune, back in September of 1994, wrote, and I quote, Today we're too sophisticated for God. We stand on our own. We're prepared and ready to choose and define our own existence. Yet with all the advancements, and there have been many, so many good things that the grace of God has given us, 
The ability to, to communicate mobily like we never have before. Self-driving cars. Fabrics that we wear that just feel so good on our body. Amazing foods and conveniences. Things that we just simply take for granted. Yet with all of our advancements, of all the things that we kind of believe that man's going to figure out, we witness injustice. We have war and we know that peace is elusive. We see hunger, we see abuse, and we see prisons of addictions that are not only common, but many of us would say, that's epidemic. Reminded what Bill Bryson said. If you've never read some of Bill's books, they're fantastic reads. He said, my father always used to tell me, you see, son, there's always someone in the world worse off than you. And I always used to think, so? That's the heart of a cynic. And it's, and it's the heart of a cynic because even Bill Bryson, you, me, we know what it's like to experience unfair treatment. We watch as others who have no place for God and have no place for what is right or what is just, we notice them. They get promoted. They gain wealth. They get recognized. And what just starts out as disappointment in our heart and, a, and just some scratching of the head becomes layer and layer of whys. Why God? Why? And belief that God is either unconcerned or Maybe he's not even there at all. And the psalmist gives evidence that this is the posture even for the believer. Let me show you what I mean. He gives evidence. He doesn't just ask the question in verse 1 and 2. Look at what he does in verse 3 and following. He asks the question, God, where are you? Then in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and on and on and on, he gives Statements, evidence, why he's come to this conclusion. Look what he says. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Verse 3, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Verse 3, he's greedy for gain and he curses God. He renounces the Lord. Verse 4, pride is in his face and the wicked do not seek him. This Sunday morning, you find yourself sitting in this room. And it wouldn't take you long to ponder probably someone that you know who has no place for God, who is clearly not in this room with you, and they seem to be doing better than you are. And these are the questions. And these are the statements. These are the things that go on and brew on a low level, at least, in our soul. The psalmist gives evidence that things are bad. He has lots of questions. He follows them up. The reason why, the reason why, the reason why. Cynicism produces things in us. Cynicism crowds out faith. And it offers you doubt, it offers you anger, and it offers you despair. 
Doubt, anger, and despair are bedfellows. And I want to tell you, they're not very friendly ones. They're unkind. Now, where I grew up, my grandparents lived in a two-bedroom home in the mouth of a holler. Now, if you don't know what a holler is, it's spelled with a W, but you say it with an R, all right? And in the, my grandparents were in one bedroom, and the rest of the cousins, when we all came, and we usually came together, we were in the other. And there was two beds and a couch and a fireplace in that room, and whatever child made their way to that bed first got a chance to sleep in that bed. But do not think it was a competition for good, because this is what happened. Grandparents would come in, and they'd put three of us in a bed at a time. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever slept with a bed hog or a kicker or a tumbler, and I had a cousin who was a screamer, in the middle of the night would scream. You don't sleep much, and the bed gets crowded. And I contend this, without you knowing it, your heart is crowded with doubt, maybe anger, and certainly some levels of low-level despair. And they're unkind bedfellows. It happens by things happening around us. I want to ask you a question. This is a probing question. It's a question for your heart. Can you be honest enough with yourself to look at yourself and say, am I worked up in a tizzy? Am I worked up and am I angry about the things that are going on in my life or the things that are going on around me, the things that are going on in my culture, the things that are going on in the United States, the things that are going on around the world? Am I worked up? Am I angry? Am I upset? Because they're an affront to God? Or because you just don't like them? They're an affront to you. Affront to your pocketbook. Affront to what you think should be. It's a hard question. It's a hard question that addresses us. From, from, from the light of James chapter 4. In fact, James 4 is an indictment to us. Verses 1 and 2 from the message translation says this. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think that they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourself. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. Despair is a result where what you feel leads you to a conclusion. I have no control. And injustice is all around me. And both anger and despair are like two sides of the same coin. You flip it and it just turns over and over. One moment you're angry, one moment you are in despair. Lily Tomlin said, no matter how cynical you get, it's impossible for us to keep up. It's that everything's got an angle, everybody's got an angle, everything's unfair. 
Cynicism produces more than that. And as it occurs, actually your sin of unbelief gets clouded and minimized. And when I mean it gets clouded and minimized, I'm meaning that we cloud it and we minimize it. The sin of unbelief hides, and when it does not hide, we minimize it of its impact. We talk about unbelief as if it's just this little old thing that all of us deal with. Because unbelief for the cynic and unbelief for those that feel despair feel as natural as breathing. And why is that? Because everybody else around you is doing it too. What is it that misery loves? company. And that's what we do. But as I said, there is a highway in. It's easy to be cynical. It's easy to to delve and live and stay in unbelief, to shake our heads, to think of all the foolishness around us. And everybody's got an angle. It's easy for us to lose touch that God calls us to childlike faith. So we must remember that faithless complaining is grumbling. The faithless complaining that comes from our lips or comes from our heart, even when we don't say it, it kind of goes like this. The world stinks. There's fake news. Democrats are commies. Republicans are just rich racists. It's what we do. We make all these assumptions. We just get on the road and we just travel just hard at it. I I see brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't use a lot of social media. And frankly, if I can look at social media and can't tell the difference between a believer and unbeliever, that's concerning. Some of the same things. The cynical heart, the despairing heart, Those that have lost sight of God. This is faithless complaining. It's the grumbling heart. But faithful complaining is lamenting. And that is what this series has been about. It's about God teaching us that there is a way to worship. There's a way to bring our heartache. To bring your brokenness. To know. Yes. You feel and see and your heart is crushed. Faithful complaining is lamenting to God about what we see, about what we feel, and looking to Him to guide us through. But when we don't do that, we lose sight of God. The cynic and the despairing lose sight of God, even in the most familiar places. Now, in your bulletin and on the screen, I'm going to show you something from Psalm 23. And again, I'm very grateful for Paul Miller who first showed this to me. And I believe it convicted me so much because I'm so familiar with it and I'm sometimes cynical. Look what happens when God gets removed and what God does gets removed from you in our lives. So what we've done is I've taken this Psalm, and I've just crossed out the reference to the good shepherd. I've crossed out the reference to what the good shepherd does. And this is what you're left with. Let's look at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Many of us know that by heart. 
You strip God out, you strip what God does out, and this is what you're left with. Look it with me. You're left with my, I shall want. Verse 2, you're left with me, me. Verse 4, my, me. Verse 4, I shall walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear evil. In the presence of my enemy, my cup, all the days of my life, I, I, I. It's about me. What you're left with is me. And what happens in our lives when our lives become so inwardly focused that we lose sight of the goodness of God and his faithfulness as a father and his gentle care and his absolute sovereign rule, even when you don't understand it. What you're left with is that. We lose sight of the true character of God. And when we do, despair of unbelief is lurking. We lose sight of an always loving, always infinitely wise, completely in control God. Who promises us, in not only in this passage, but throughout his, his word, that God will execute judgment. It's not for us to do, but for him to do. Look at with me in verse 16. Of, this, of, of all this psalm, I want you to see what happens down in verse 16. After all the lamenting, he makes a statement. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. There is an overt reminder here that in the land there's evil. And God owns the land. What's happening to our heart? What's occurring that leads us to this place of cynicism and despair? What happens is we stop dreaming in a good God. And when you stop dreaming in a good God, you start dying a death of despair. And that path is paved with cynicism. And that cynic always looks at the blue sky and believes there's a cloud nearby. And everyone has an angle. No one can be trusted. And you pray and you go to God and you pray and something happens. And then very quickly right behind it you conclude, that it probably worked out that way anyways. God's no longer seen as a trusting father. But God is seen as a distant force. We somehow believe that God is good, but you're bad and I'm bad and he's punishing us. And God is so mysterious that there's no way to know him. All these conclusions we make, we find ourselves frustrated. We're angry and we're driven by all kinds of things that just flips us over and over and over and again. And somehow, it just doesn't seem right. Now, as I said, a room this size, not everybody is there. I know that. I want to remind you, though, that God's word is clearly showing us, even in this lament, that there are people of God who look around them and see the injustice and see the suffering and wonder where God is. Is that you? I want to remind you that the people of God, we, we are called to understand 
that we do not need to spend our life on that highway. That God intends for us and gives us direction to bring our lamenting, but understand that God trusting a lamenting can lead us out of despair. And that's what this psalm shows us. Even, even when we witness what your mind can't always understand. What my mind cannot always understand. These are but God moments. Here's how it works. In the time we've got left, I'm going to show you. There is a path out. Highway in, path out. So let me show you how it works. First, here is how you deal with despair. Interrupt it. Interrupt your despair with childlike faith. Look at verse 5 and verse 14. I want you to look at two places. It's so interesting, in verse 5, the first thing the psalmist says is this. He's talking about the wicked, and he says, His ways are prosperous at all times. And then right in the middle of verse 5, he interrupts it. He interrupts that thought. The wicked prosper at all times. Then he interrupts it, and he says this. Your judgments, he's talking about God. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. You betcha. You understand that the scripture tells us that there is not an idle word that's not caught from heaven. Every word, every thought is captured. He knows it. And it's out of sight. While the wicked prosper... While they thrive, while they have no regard for God, while they may just simply be indifferent. The psalmist says, Lord, he can't see what you are doing. It's blind. It's heavy. Then in verse 14. Down in verse 14, he interrupts another string of lamenting. And he says, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commit himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Interrupt your despair with childlike faith. These two places are the but God moments where what is lost in our feelings can be interrupted. We feel one way, but you and I can interrupt it with what it's like to know God, what it's like to trust God, what it's like to understand that we cannot always discern what God is doing, but surely He's still in control. Yes, you can take Him your broken heart. Yes, you can take Him your honest feelings. But we are trained to move our focus from the down and in to the up and out. Not down and in in our despair, up and out in the goodness and the faithfulness and the promises that God will be just. Secondly, here's a path out. We must lean into truth that God sees, hears, and is going to act. Now, these are clearly evident in verses 14, 16, and 17. I want want to show them to you. Look look at down in verse 14. The psalmist says here, you do see. 
Then look at verse, down look at 17. So skip over 16, look at 17. You hear, oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. So God sees, God hears, and then he also says in verse 16, the king, the Lord is king forever and ever, and the nations perish from his his land. He's going to do justice to the fatherless, verse 18, and the oppressed. We must lean into truth. We must lean into James chapter 4, verse 8 that says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It means come with your baggage, come with your brokenness, come with the shattered pieces. Come. God sees, he hears, and he'll act. Third, here is how you make your way from despair. Not only interrupting it with childlike faith, but embracing what God's promised. Look at verse 17. What God has promised us is not sunshine and lollipops. And that's somehow what we think we should have. What God promises in verse 17 is what the Christian, what the believer needs. He needs his heart strengthened. He needs his heart changed. Verse 17. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. We must embrace what God has promised. That God will strengthen our heart. Even in the midst of our broken moments, God is ready to work in your life to help you walk through it. Secondly, and I believe your outline has got a typo. Actually, it's not. Uh, it says something about ultimate faithless or fatherless. It's missing a key word. Here's the key word. We need... Ultimate justice, which God promises to do. God promises to do and work in his world to bring about ultimate justice. Now, it's important that we understand that ultimate justice often looks different than what we think. Our pet projects are not necessarily what God's pet projects are. He turns his attention to the most susceptible to those that had no regard, who had no strength, had no place to turn, the fatherless and the oppressed, the orphaned, without hope. That's where he turns his attention to. And he says, you will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Prior to coming to Jesus Christ, every person sitting in this room who calls their name, calls on the name of the Lord as their Savior, you were fatherless. You had an earthly father, yes. But before Christ, you were fatherless. In this passage, he's promising this. Justice for the fatherless. You know who that justice was? His name was Jesus Christ. He has a name. 
He brought justice to us. He brought truth to us. He brought His death and resurrection to us to cover our sin, to cover our despair, to cover that temptation that we deal with all the time. That part of us that is a cynic at its core, He comes for. The most vulnerable. Unless we forget, Isaiah 47, verses 10, verse 10 says this. You felt secure in your wickedness. As Isaiah was writing to actually, to God's people, to those that were in the land. You felt secure in your wickedness. No one sees me, you said, but your wisdom and knowledge have led you astray. And you said, I'm the only one and there is no other. So disaster will overtake you and you won't be able to charm it away. Wow. You know what it's like to meet someone who has a silver tongue and charm their way. You've had enough experience with them. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's somebody you work with. Maybe it's somebody that lives on your street. And it seems that their charm just gets them what they want. God reminds us in his word, there is a day where charm will do nothing for the charmer. Justice will come. I ask people, I ask people all the time in counseling, are, are you content being a child? Are you? Children don't worry about a lot of things. Children don't worry about housing costs. Children don't worry about congressional seats, the Supreme Court rulings, the balance of power, whether a state's going to be red, whether a state's going to be blue, whether there's fake news or real news, they don't worry. Children usually and boldly ask for what they want. You know why they do that? Because by and large, children, no matter how Lousy we may be as parents. Children look at mom and dad and they trust them. As a child, I drank regularly from a hose. I ate what was put in front of me, never wondering where it came from. I fell asleep dreaming about tomorrow. I laughed hard, I played hard, and I left the worries to my father. We can move out of cynicism and despair. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We can move out of the place where our lives are primarily occupied with cynicism. We can move from that place and Jesus shows us the way. In Luke chapter 8, there's, a story, there's layer upon layer of story. And in Luke chapter 8, I'm going to ask you to turn there quickly. Let's just look at this together. Luke chapter 8. Jesus is calming storms. He's teaching. He's healing a woman. 
And then there is this man, his name is Jarius. Jarius has a daughter. She's 12, about 12 years old. And Jarius has a situation that no matter how much power he has as a ruler, he can't do a thing about. His daughter is dying. And he hears about this Jesus. And he goes to find him. Now, this is, no, this is not a cell phone call or a text. Can you drop by? They have to go get him and bring him there. And in the midst of this story, there's two stories happening. There's this woman who's dealt with this illness all her life, and she touches Jesus' garment, and she's healed like that. But there's another story right layered right behind it of Jairus and his daughter. Look, let's pick up in verse 49. Of 48. And he said to her, talking about this woman who'd just been healed from touching Jesus. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the rulers, talking about Jairus, someone from the ruler's household came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Sometimes we need to read the scripture and not just jump over to the next sentence. I want you to pause right there and I want you to think. What would that felt like in that moment? For Jarius and for those that were already back in the household before they sent the messenger, the girl's dead. The wave of emotion, the wave of despair. It may not look just like that in your life, but it's looked like that. Now, I want you to see what Jesus does. The but God moment. Look with me. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's household came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Before he heals her, he looks at Jairus and says, I'm looking for something from you. Just believe me. Do you know it's the thing most pervasive in the Old Testament that God looks at his people and says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't look at them. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Does that characterize you? Does it reflect who you are? Do you interrupt your cynicism? And trust him. Let's pray. Father, it's our prayer Today, very humbly before you, oh God, help us with our unbelief. Help us to look to you. Help us to know what it's like to truly give ourselves, Lord, to what only you can do, to bring us out of our unbelief, to bring us out of our doubt, to bring us out of our despair. Lead us out, Father, is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.